hey, this is Richie coming at you from the School of Marketing HQ. Before you dive into the show, I just want to tell you about a brand new short 12-week program we've launched called the Giants Marketing Masterclass. The program gives you access to insights and expert comments from over 25 CEOs and CMOs from major companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, M&S, Pret, and WPP, just to name a few. We focus on six key areas of marketing, customer, brand, commercial, creative, channel, and data and analytics. So if you were looking to upskill yourself or your team for just two and a half hours each week and get access to a network with our industry's giants through our live sessions, do check out the School of Marketing website for more deets. Alrighty, for now, enjoy the show. Welcome everybody, welcome back to the Places We'll Go show. Uh, now well into our second hundred of shows, second hundred shows. Um, and we have the very well-respected and I would say very well-loved Gary Booker on the show. Welcome, Gary. Hi, thank you. Let's, let's just yeah. go retrace a little bit of Gary and his career in marketing. So actually, Gary is Chief Marketing Innovation and Strategy Officer at Rentskill. So like the full house, not just a, like a narrow CMO. You've got the plus, plus, plus. And, and people probably aren't aware, Rentskill is a FTSE 40 and Gary is on the global exec leadership. So when we talk about marketing having influence and impact in an organization, Gary's right at the very, very top. And this is a biggie, 43,000 people in 83 countries. And um, probably shouldn't skip past the fact that in the last four years, the share price has tripled. And if you think about the world we've been in, that's a pretty good success story. So clearly doing something right, Gary, and also held an array of CEO, non-exec, CMO roles, notable stints, I think, at Dixon's, Telefonica, EA. Um, also, what we share is that we are Marketing Academy Fellows. You're in the inaugural year, 2013, and delighted that you're now joining the, the council for the alumni. Um, when we've spoken a couple of times, I think what you will bring today is um, a un some unique insights through some of your upbringing. I won't give too much away now, um, but you've, you've seen some things and experienced some things that many people have, will never have done. And, and so I characterize you as somebody who has uh, knows how to apply compassion in a commercial context, which is a pretty unique thing and probably is what served you so well through through thick and thin. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. You always bring a touch of humor, a lightness of touch, um, and you're very focused, but you don't take yourself too seriously. So all good. I'm really delighted to have you on the show, and I think you'll enjoy it, and everyone else listening in will too. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, I've got the world's longest job title which involves a lot of stuff that is that is for sure i didn't choose that but uh, yeah there's a yeah there's a lot i'm very very grateful to you uh, for having me on the show great oh gary come on the pleasure is absolutely all ours and and every time we, we've had a chat it's just been such a such a delight really and i'm really glad that we we're able to share it with others today so there we go let's let's dive right in how are you doing how's it going and and uh, love you're obviously a chelsea supporter um, as we can see from the background uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's a bit of a curse, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it was, that, and that was literally because when I was five in the early seventies, um, I liked the color blue. You know, that was it. Those are the decision making. Yeah, that's the quality of my, you know, my analysis. I liked blue. None of my family were football followers. I thought this that blue kit looks good. Uh, they're they're the team for me. So I've had them. Um, obviously, I've, I've been through the fallow years of the basically the seventies, the eighties, and the nineties. Uh, and then, so it looks like I'm a bandwagon jumper, but no, tragically, I've been there through through thick and thin. Hey, uh, distinct assets, guys. Just about to say that, Ricky, Rich, Richie, and um, 
uh, of course, we've we've had Ellie on the show, so you can have a bit of fisticuffs with her. She's now at Manchester United. Absolutely. Um, uh, so, uh, but um, you know, it's been a crazy, tumultuous couple of years. Hopefully, we're coming through the worst of it from a pandemic point of view. But still, the world is upside down. And you, so you have a global role. So how how's how's that working? Because there's so much going on in the world. It's it's fantastic. Um, we're very blessed. We're we're now up. I think probably even even since. You pulled your stats together. I think we're closer to 90 countries. So it is a truly global role. We've got a fantastic team. We've got, um, you know, presence in, in all major markets. Our biggest market by um, miles is the United States of America. Uh, we're very big in Europe. We obviously have a, a good brand in, in the UK. We're a British founded company. So we were started in the 1920s. So we've been going around 100 years. Um, I think one part of our business floated on the stock exchange in the in the 1920s, the initial part of our business, the hygiene part. Uh, but it's great. It's great to have, you know, diversity in every sense of the word from from that kind of colleague base and that kind of input. Um, it, it brings a whole load of challenges because we're in India, we're in China, we're in you know, the Philippines, we're, we're everywhere. Um, so no, there's no one size fits all, I guess, which is, which is good though. I mean, it means that you've got to continually, you know, be on your toes and, and adapt and, and be nimble. I love it. I love British company taking on the States, huh? Well, yeah. In fact, actually, as, as we are recording this, um, two days ago, we bought, we're, we're number one worldwide. We just bought or had you know, completed the deal on buying the number three worldwide, which was very upsetting to the number two worldwide. Let me tell you. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, that is an American business. And I think it was the first time a British listed business had bought an American listed business for years and years. So it was quite, caused quite a kerfuffle uh, in, in, you know, in the markets and so on, just to understand wh what, is, what is going on here. But yeah, it's good. Great success story. So, so Gary, you're clearly playing at a stratospheric level. Was this always your destiny? <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely not <laughs> absolutely not no uh no couldn't have been that's the case i mean you know uh, i i never had a plan i never had a plan i never i had a love of people i had a fascination with psychology and what makes people tick uh, and that came a, a lot from kind of my upbringing and so i really just followed that interest in people and why people do the things they do and that kind of led me into marketing which led me into you know business and then and then I've kind of just taken what's been in front of me over the years and I've been very you know really really blessed and very very fortunate with uh, some of the opportunities that I've been given hey I, I must admit Gary that before the show I was doing a little bit of stalking and um, I came across a previous podcast that you recorded maybe a while ago and you talked about the Frank and Phil story and I love that um, which very much shaped your your view on leadership and how you want right. to be as a leader. I'd love to wonder if you could maybe recite that and perhaps some of those reflections along the way. Sure. That, uh, great. I mean, you know, one of the questions you know, sometimes you get asked is, you know, who was, who was your mentor? Who did you look up to? Whatever. And I always struggle with that because what I've, uh, what I've had is a, a number of people I've worked for that I've thought, I don't ever want to be like that person. So I've had the kind of whatever the opposite is of mentor. Um, I've had that a few times, but um, I've never stopped learning. I think that's the thing that, um, I would say kind of, uh, you know, has kept me going in every job I've done. I've made mistakes and if every day I make a mistake um, and I learn from it. But that, yeah, that, that story very early on. This is my first ever job. So I was a graduate trainee, you know, in a suit 
Blimey, I remember those days. Probably in half your years, the audience don't don't remember. But I was in a suit, and uh, it was my first big presentation as a graduate trainee to the MD. It was a big, big deal. And the, and the and the MD put out this kind of brief. I want to know this, 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 and you know what your presentation on A, B, C, D, and E. So I prepared it. Took the draft to the marketing director at the time, and uh, he and I, and I was very pleased with myself, obviously, and and he said, um, yeah, that's not what uh, that's not what Frank wants to hear. I said, well, no, but that's in the brief, though, Phil. That's you know that's that is, is there. It's written out. Yeah, I, you know I know Frank really well. You know, don't do that. Um, what you need to do is do A, B, C, D, and E. I said, okay, okay, fine. So I went away, rewrote it, came in, uh, you know, feeling a bit less confident, frankly, because it wasn't quite my material. Um, but you know, boss knows best, and so started presenting. And then, literally, you know, just one of those you know moving moments. After about, well, I can't remember. It was like a, it, it felt like a, 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 about thirty seconds. It was probably four or five minutes out of politeness. You know, he did the dreadful thing, which he just put his hand up and went, "Let me just stop you there." <laughs> I went, okay. And he said, um, "In the brief, it says you know I want to hear ja 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 ja." I went, yeah, "Yes, uh, yes, Frank, yeah." But you're not seem to be mentioning that and you're not going down that. No. And, and he said, well, you know, let me just, are you going to talk about X? And I went, uh, no. He said, are you going to talk about Y? Uh, no. Are you going to talk about Z? I said, well, let me then. And, and he said, well, you know, why is that? It's clearly in the brief. So then I looked to my marketing director, who was my big, big boss. And uh, he said, expecting him to go, Frank, listen, sorry, all my fault, you know, no worries. You know, I gave Gary a bit of a steer, did you? And I looked over at Phil and he said, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry, Frank, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, let's just regroup, you know. Literally, all I could see was his white tail disappearing down the bunny hole and leaving me to be shot. Uh, so, I, so I thought, mm, okay, so, you know, what did I learn? hold your hand up when you've made a mistake if you've you know and, and what this very fine gentleman did was he just left me completely by myself horribly exposed and i thought and this was like you know three months into my career i thought i am never gonna do that for anyone i never want anybody to feel what i just felt anyway so that was yeah an early shaper but the, the, the concept of the anti-mentor is a is a new one but probably quite a powerful one because we probably all had them I'm, I'm intrigued to know what happened to phil uh, he carried on, um, God bless you, asking people for the rest of his career, doing and then retired. I think, yeah, I think it was, uh, yeah, no, it, I don't think it was destined for further greatness. He was a lovely guy, but just left me a bit exposed. Richie, let's let's not have Phil on the show, eh? Let's let's not do that. Possibly not, but we'll keep that one, keep that one to ourselves. But uh, look, Gary, I want to interesting. You you use the term not not meant for greatness. What does greatness mean to you? Wow, what does greatness mean to me? Um, I think we have a responsibility to look after other people. And I think the greatest people are the ones that do that the best. And um, I, in every job that I've taken across many, many sectors, I have tried to do that because I believe it's the right thing to do. Let me tell you, it's not always worked out. It's not always. So for me, greatness is getting the best out of other people, seeing others flourish 
Um, and that's what gets me, this gets me out of bed in the morning, just watching others succeed. And, and it's always been the case, even in, you know, very small companies that I worked in, but, um, yeah, it's not always that kind of approach. I don't think is always appreciated in every business. It depends on the sector and it depends on the culture and the, and the personalities, but yeah, that's, that's what I would say. Just, just a lot, love the thought that you didn't talk about commercials, B and L anything to do with marketing. It's, it's people, 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 all of yeah, but all of the, all of the above comes from having the people who've got that unlocked talent and are committed and driving and working in the right way and feeling respected and feeling empowered. The rest is, you know, gravy. I mean, that, that follows. That's not that's mm. my view. So a lot of people say, yeah, I look after my people, but I happen to know Gary with you, it runs particularly deep um, touched on it in the intro, just in terms of your upbringing. So um, I didn't know until we spoke relatively recently about um, why, why would anybody about the fact that your parents ran a rehab center mm. uh, and that meant that you saw some stuff that many people wouldn't see. And so for as much as you're willing to share, and I think our audience can, can take anything you can throw at them. Um, t- tell us about that and what, what it was and what you learned. Yeah. And it was, it was great. It was fine. It was all good. You know, nothing horrendous happened by any means. I know some people have had, you know, absolutely terrible upbringings and, and abusive and, and I had none of that. It was, you know, none of that at all. It was, it was all positive, but it was strange and different. So when I was, my, my parents are very strong Christians, that faith um, that lives around me and, uh, and, and around our whole family. <clears throat> and I was an only child. So you would think that only children would be, you know, <laughs> spoiled and, you know, whatever privileged and whatever great generalizations there for your audience. Um, but uh, um, so I was an only child, but when my parents were kind of, when I, when I was at eight, nine, I'd say eight or nine, 10, something like that um, age. Yeah. They decided that they would take in people that kind of really, there wasn't a brief. It was who society didn't want. It was kind of society's rejects. So it was homeless it was drug addicts. It was people out of prison who couldn't, couldn't get a job. Um, so, you know, I was a nine and 10 year old. And then, so we had a, we had a little three bedroom cottage and then that was, you know, that was filled with three people. Uh, and then we, um, my parents got some support from a charity and, uh, to, to buy a bigger house. And then we had a, a five bedroom place. And so then they filled that with kind of six or seven people. And then they eventually had a 10 bedroom house. So this big kind of manor house um, that looked, you know, hugely impressive. And it was filled with all kinds of people just really needed looking after, really needed looking after. So uh, from the outside, you know, it, it looked wealthy, but my, my, my dad had a very, you know, very good, but very, you know, average paying job Had all of these people to look after. So, you know, to give you an indication. So, um, I remember you know, just the 12, 13 year old coming in from school as you do with your, with your rucksack on your back and walking into my own living room. And there's just a gentleman sitting there and I'd say, hello. And he'd go, hello. And I'd think, right, where the hell's my mum? Where's, where's my mum? And I'd wander out to the kitchen and there's my mum. And I'd go, mum, there's a, there's a bloke in the, there's a bloke in the living room. She said, yeah, yeah, no problem. He's going to be with us for um, about 10 days. Just, um, any knives, you know, any razor, but just keep everything hidden, keep everything locked away for the next 10 days. You know, it'll all be okay, but just, yeah. And so they had a great compassion, Mark, for people. And, uh, you know, whilst I was growing up, we had two people commit suicide. Um, one, one guy uh, in and around us shot himself. 
and not in not where we were living, but uh, went away and did it. And we had a lady with really bad schizophrenia who also sadly took her life uh, before punching me in the face, as I recall. But uh, so it was a very shaping upbringing, but it, it taught me a lot about, I guess, a couple of things, really. Um, it, it taught me how to deal with whatever life throws at you. Whatever comes across, whatever, good, bad, rich, poor, posh, whatever, whomever, uh, who is that person and, 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 and deal with it. And I think the second then, which obviously relates very closely to that, is it, is it taught me to adapt and understand and to relate to all kinds of different people. So I think on the one hand, it taught me a lot about dealing with whatever life chucks at me. And on the second, it taught me to really get to know people and understand and be able to adapt and 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 that so it was it was great but yeah it wasn't a normal it carried on right through to when i went to university and i and i and i left and actually shortly after i left just by coincidence my parents stopped doing that and moved on to other things but it was an it was a very interesting kind of right through my formative years space to grow up and taught me a lot gosh we can only imagine gary and um you know i always admire people who have the the desire to do that, quite frankly, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's beyond it's a massive sacrifice for them. I mean, exactly. It's hu- humongous. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to turn to something that you, you perhaps alluded to and, and said before, which is around the role of mistakes. And, you know, you're very humble in saying that, you know, make mistakes every day and, and done so across your various roles. But how do you deal with when your team makes massive fuck ups? What do you do? um yeah so i the first thing is i'm pretty calm so i don't go you know my hair's never on fire so i'm not running around so if there's some horrendous cock up i'm going you know it's first is exhale you know okay i could really really do without this okay okay right so calmly let's get into the detail what has cocked up what's the you know let's actually what's going on is it as bad as it seems is it is it the end of the world is it not you know because again sometimes it is and sometimes it really isn't but it just feels like it so let's get to the truth of the matter and let's not worry yet yet about how and whatever let's worry about what do we need to do about it and usually the first thing is to fess up a bit a bit like we just said earlier so uh, okay so who needs to know and who needs to know now and who actually can wait? Can it wait 24 hours because actually I need to get some more information or can it wait 24 hours because I can actually put a few things in place that might fix it and make it less bad before I let people know? Or do I need to pick up the phone and go, right, okay, just sit down because I've got some bad news for you. So I think um, calmness in dealing with it. Um, I think, you know, taking a kind of pragmatic approach. Um, and then, and I think that really, really helps because as I said, I'm a big believer in learning. But then for whoever has been unfortunate enough to have to shuffle in front of me and tell me they've made this horrendous mistake, you know, they're not getting fired. They're not getting whatever. They're, it's clearly not great, but I'm with them. I'm beside them. We'll deal with it together. You're not alone. Right. What are we going to do to fix it? And then, of course, we retrace and said, how did this happen? And what do we need to do to make sure it never happens again? So, you know, that's, that's how I approach it. Uh, I, I, you reminded me of the expression, uh, the sky is not falling. 
which uh, I think is always always quite calming. Um, Richie, we've, yeah. we've and, some, and somebody else said about something about you know you know why would I fire you? I've just you've just made a half a million dollar training exercise. You know, <laughs> you've now learnt by making the biggest possible mistake. Why, why would I why do I lose you now? Because you're the best person in the business to make sure that never happens again. Gary, are you are you the king of reframing? By the way, because you, you you had a corker before, so it seems like uh, it's yeah, something maybe. that comes quite naturally to you. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, um, lost, lost, lost my third there. So, so be very calm, very deliberate. Was that your route into marketing? Like you always thought that was your destiny, and or random accident? We we see all sorts. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it, it was it was a hundred percent born out of my you know my, my childhood experience, my upbringing. I just had an a, a day to day case study of people and things that were going well, things that weren't going well, and what made people tick. And so that naturally actually led me into psychology. So I was really interested in that. So that's what I studied. And I did it at a time when you know it wasn't particularly trendy. I think it just became a kind of default almost, you know, course for a lot of people. But I wasn't interested in, you know, serial killers. And I wasn't interested in chasing mice around mazes and why did they eat the cheese? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not, that wasn't my thing. But it was about um you know obedience and social order and and ergonomics and the world around you and what shapes you and learning and development and all those things were the things that fascinated me um but i always wanted to uh, you know didn't want to do that in a clinical sense it wasn't that wasn't my bag i wanted to, to i wanted to find a, a career where i could put that kind of that was centered around understanding why people do what they do and, and believe it or not that is marketing i mean that is marketing mm. why do people make purchase decisions so you know i always you know heart back to the what i what i call the kind of navy polo shirt experiment which is you could have four 100 cotton almost identical navy polo shirts in front of you and one is from primark and one is from mns and one's from ralph Lauren, and one's from let's say i don't know balenciaga right and they're the same polo shirt but one is 2.99 and one is 19.99 and one is 59.99 and one's probably 250 that's just bonkers why would you ever choose the expensive one when there's one that's perfectly good enough on the left hand side and it's branding and it's decision making and it's what it means to have that item and and that whole just makes no sense whatsoever but that's that is that is business. That's commerce. That's that's how everybody makes money. So I was just fascinated by that whole space. Look, it's absolutely true. I I once uh, fairly recently read a, a social media caption, which said, you know, a bottle of water in Tesco's is fifty p. A bottle of water in Pret is two pounds, and a bottle of water on a plane is five pounds. It's still the same bloody water, um, and yet context matters. And and like you say, all the all the things that go around it. Fascinating world. Um, so Gary, I've, and I'm, I'm going to give you a caveat here to the next question, um, which you may not like, but anyway, hey, it's our show. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but um, so clearly a, a FTSE 40 company, right? Mighty impressive, weathered multiple storms well, and, and I'm sure you will do so in the future. What creates the magic? But the answer is you cannot just say people. <laughs> great tie my hands behind my back Richie. that's that's a great <laughs> because it's a given as we as we talked about before okay well so what depends what you mean by what creates the magic what creates the magic in terms of um 
of um, you know b- building a business and, and being successful, I think is it's really really simple. It's properly, truly, not pretend. Properly, truly understanding your customer. Properly, truly understanding what it is they do. So uh, throughout my career, I've, I moved lots of different sectors. I was in big multinationals. I worked for three startups in my career. I worked for a small family business that was like absolute chaos. I can't even begin to tell you. Across different sectors, different ownerships, American, Spanish. I worked in San Francisco. I've worked in some funky places. I've worked in some disastrous places. But the thread which I didn't realize until a lot, a lot later through what, I, what, what I've been doing is I've always worked to add sales, add profit, add value to the company through a better understanding of the customer or the customers than anybody else. And that's not an arrogant statement because I, you know, when I succeed, I fail, but that's what I've been trying to do. So that's the magic. If I can, let me give you an example of where, where I had this. I worked for Electronic Arts, which is a fantastic company. So I worked for EA. Um, actually, whilst I was at AA, you know, they were the market leaders in, in video games, and they still are. Um, but, but during the period that I worked for them, they went from, you know, a single player game where you started and you did the missions and you finished and you chucked the disc away because you'd finished the game to multiplayer, which was a completely different format, to then online and microtransactions, which is a completely different business model. And in the middle of all that, the Nintendo Wii came out, which is a completely different way of playing games than anybody had ever done before. And once we got our head around that, the iPhone came out and that changed gaming forever. So talk about needing to be nimble and agile anyway. But the, we had a game called FIFA, which I guess everybody will know. But back in the day, back in the 2005, 2006, there were two games. There were two football games on the market. There was FIFA and there was a game called Pro Evolution Soccer, which was a great game. It was the fans' favorite. It was uh, Theoretically, it was more realistic and people liked playing it. FIFA had the licenses, but Pro Evo was in inverted a better game. And it was my job to market FIFA. And the good news was that we had, uh, I think, uh, about 55% market share. I think we had 45% or something. We were about half and half anyway. To cut a long story short, we did all kinds of genius marketing. Genius, genius. We did, you know, we, we, we wanted to be wherever football was being discussed. So we were all with the fantasy football staff. We, we took all perimeter boards so that on match of the day, everybody could see us because you can't obviously advertise on the BBC. On BBC. So we just wanted to make sure we had a presence around football. We took the back page of the paper. We partnership with 442 blah 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 all the stuff that was great and so then but then but then on the weekend on a saturday like some very creepy individual middle-aged man i then would linger around a game store to watch as fifa came out and pro evolution was that i'd watch the customers buying so you'd have a 13 year old kid and he'd be going in he clearly was going to buy either fifa or, or pro evolution he went to the display he picked up fifa i'm punching the air silently in the corner and he takes it up to the counter with his money and my work is done i'm a marketing genius hallelujah and then something really interesting happened he put the 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 game on the counter and pushed it across to the guy to to pay for for his copy of fifa and the guy behind the counter went you know just that you don't want that, mate. That's crap, that is. What you want is Proevo. It's a much better game, much, much better game. So all my marketing theoretical genius had worked. You know, the, the, the kid had got the money, he'd gone, he was making his choice. But there was a crucial part 
of the decision-making journey that didn't even enter. It wasn't in any marketing plan. Forget Omnichannel. It was that the management of video game stores just had an inherent dislike of our brand and our game. And they much preferred this other one. And so we had to, we, 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 we scrambled and we grouped and we said, what are we going to do? So we had to partner with game and we, we got our developers to hold kind of meetings with them and say, why don't you like our game? And what's your input? And what could we do to change it? And we bought them some pizza and some beers and we stayed on at six o'clock in the evening and we chatted to them. And then we showed them you know, over, over time the work that we'd done to try and make the game better. We, we got them to be advocates of what we were doing. So there's a whole long, dull story here. The point is what looks like a genius marketing plan on paper isn't if you don't understand every single tiny nuance about what is influencing somebody to make a purchase. And that's, that's, that's the magic. Love that. The it's, it's sort of curiosity on speed to go all the way down to the, that critical moment of where it doesn't all hang together. It's a, it reminds me a little bit, Richard, you often say Rory Sutherland, you know, this marketing is the only industry where, you know, one idea can pay for your whole career or, or, or one moment or one insight or one piece of curiosity. Brilliant. So, so just on the curiosity theme, you said uh, I worked at a really small organization. It was chaos. I couldn't even begin to tell you. Well, I'm just going to kind of push on that a little bit. And uh, it sounds like there's something to hear about that experience, good, bad or ugly. Well, like I said, right at the start, I mean, I, the, the joy is I, I've learned in every scenario I've been in, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't regret anything that I did. I don't regret any decision that I made at all. I don't regret it at all. It doesn't mean I've made good decisions. I've made really bad decisions, but I don't regret them. They were right at the time. And even if they were, if they went wrong, I've learned an absolute, you know, shed load from, from that experience. So, yeah, I mean, I, I worked for a, you know, very good, uh, you know, British B2B, a company Unipart, my first job, you know, very well structured. They'd won some kind of marketing team of the year a few years before I joined. So it was clearly the place to be. And I got on their graduate trainee program and it was great. And they taught me focus on the customer and they were very structured and they had a, a university before that was a thing. And so I got amazing grounding. And but but I wanted then the opposite, which is okay, that's good and that's structured. But what about me? You were still a tiny, you know, cog in the wheel. What about being much more entrepreneurial? And, you know, and so I joined this business that had just acquired the license to the Premier League. So it was a football licensing company. It used to make the little stuff that fell out of your cereal packet back in the day, you know, the little whatever it was. And so they used to make this. It was a B2B company. And it decided to get a license with the Premier League when it was just a new thing in the 90s and make football figures. And they, they had no marketing. They didn't know, you know. And so somehow by, again, by a complete, piece of carnage and accident and god willing i ended up as the marketing director in this business with no marketing director experience whatsoever and just was there which is a whole other you know thread about putting yourself out there and stretching yourself which i would always recommend uh, and I, mean, I turned up on the first day and and uh and i walked into a room and there was a desk and a chair and i said uh we've got a computer and they went nope I went, okay, I'll just pop home and get my laptop and we'll get started then. I mean, that, that was it. I started the marketing department from scratch, which was fantastic. But I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, Mark. I really, really didn't. I was, I was actually talking to my son about this last night because uh, he's now a video editor and really, really successful. I was joking about, I must dig out some of the early TV adverts that I made for like a horror showreel of what not to do. Because of course, what, what happened was they said, well, you've, you know, we need a TV advert. And I went, of course we do. 
And they said, well, you've done that before, haven't you? And I went, of course I have, <laughs> because they expected me to have done it. And I thought, I'll, let me see if I can get through this. So, um, yeah, it was it was just great. Right? It was fantastic. But I mean, it was highs and lows. It was private equity. It was massive success. It was it was a Sunday Times fast track 100 business. It was it, it was the, it was the only job I've ever had where I used to come home every night and burst into tears. So, so if that's a guide, that's a guide to it, you know, early days, but yeah, a learning experience. Yeah. Wonderful. And, um, you know, what I take great, great sort of thought or, or con, not, not necessarily consolation, but the thought that you can work in an organization like that and then still become the chief marketing innovation strategy officer of a FTSE 40 is, is brilliant. It's just, you know, it, it it is really inspiring to think that because I think too many people sort of always sort of go after the big brand and they kind of, you know, the accolades that go along with it, but actually maybe the biggest learnings happen in smaller companies. I think, yes, yes, uh, quite, quite possibly. I, I think actually the criteria and thing that I would say is, you know, go where, where you think you can learn the most, whether that's big or small, go where you think you can learn the most. So sometimes small companies do have that. And go where you will be given responsibility, go where you will be given freedom, and then, you know, you will accelerate. And it really kind of doesn't matter what that world is, um, but, but that's, that's what I've done. And, and that's, you know, I just took the opportunities that were in front of me. And, yeah, I've been very fortunate. And it's just, you know, it's grown, it's grown from there. Yeah, um, I'm just going to do a very small proud dad moment. My daughter, Harriet, Harriet, if you're listening in, uh, has just started out in a scale up. Um, and she is at tender age of 20. She is the marketing department, a little bit like you. I think she's got a computer, though. Uh, um, but she's definitely going somewhere where she'll, she'll learn a lot. I also love the, the blaggit. You know, you've, you've made a TV ad, haven't you? Yeah, of course I have. Um, <laughs> brilliant. But, but the you have had... CEO, you've had general management roles and marketing roles, and so you sort of moved a bit in between. Mm. Um, and so I'd love to hear you talk about um, what it was like to kind of have to let go of the craft of marketing a little bit mm. as you moved into general management. Was that was that a big deal or not a big deal? Yeah, and no, I think it is a big deal. I think it is a really, really important step because there's a kind of, you know, it, it's tempting in, in one's career to kind of have, it, it can split into two halves, which is you spend the first half of your life trying to get more responsibility, more people, more teams, more this, more that, more grow, grow, grow ambition. And, um, and then at some point you realize, well, that actually isn't all that good for you and isn't actually all that good for your development because you just have more people and it's more challenges, it's more HR staff and, and whatever, whatever. And I actually, when I was at EA, I took, you know, I was running a quite a big bit of, uh, of the, the business in Europe. And I then just took a decision to go sideways and, and, and I took one person with me. And I had quite a big team and it was me and one person. And we said, right, we're going to build this other bit. And again, it was, I had the freedom to do it and the responsibility to do it. But um, so, yeah, for me, um, I think just having the opportunity to do some due diligence, do due diligence on, uh, on what a role is going to give you. Um, but to try to answer your question, you you your first half is is that but i think there's a really important bit where you realize that you can't do everything and you have to you know you always want to get the most out of those around you but but my success now whisper it is you know it's nothing to do with me it's all to do with the team around me it's to do with the, the team i've built the way of working the culture um and so you have to go through that first part of your career where you're 
gaining the responsibility, doing stuff and doing it yourself. You have to do that. But you, you do have to come to a point, it can come whenever, where you realize that you can't do it yourself and actually surround yourself with better people. I mean, it's all cliches now, but you know, surround yourself with more intelligent people, uh, better people. Um, my job, because it's innovation, strategy and, and marketing, you know, I've got PhD scientists working for me who are just completely confused as to why they're working for somebody like me who knows nothing. And, you know, I've got, you know, incredibly intelligent. I've got, you know, um, people who are doing connected devices and, and product design engineers and, you know, all kinds of incredibly intelligent people. I couldn't begin to do this stuff. Mark. I couldn't, you know, I've got no chance. So actually um, letting go, um, empowering people um, and realizing that, that the success of the business is about letting other people make mistakes. And that is tricky. That is tricky. When you know, there's this whole middle period where you do this and you let people do the stuff and it's not great. And you think, oh, oh man, I could have, should have just done it myself. You know, I knew this was going to happen. Did you, but you have to go through that bit. And it is actually a really tricky, I don't know, six months, year, two years, maybe where you're, you know, you're, you're giving people a empowerment and they're not quite doing the job, um, but they will get there. Yeah. Fascinating. And, and, and I think maybe perhaps related to this, um, so maybe a similar tone in that sense, is you talked about earlier that Rentical, Rentical being a truly global organization, over 90 countries, um, but actually what perhaps is quite unique is that no two markets are the same in terms of your service offering, because of course, contextualization, localization amongst the products and services and, and, the, and the need is, is vastly different. So how do you, well, one, how do you, what's your take on diversity of thought? And two, as, an, as somebody who's clearly Anglo-Saxon, um, how do you then deal with sort of cultures that perhaps are far removed from what you've known and what you've known in the past? Yeah, I mean, that is a great question. I think, um, we as a business we do i think we do a pretty good job we were you know voted by management today as, as britain's most admired for our diversity and inclusion so we're doing some good things but i still think we're you know as all businesses are we're, we're way short of where we would want to be so it's a continual um learning curve um i think yeah i'm i kind of i kind of refer to myself as you know unfortunately uh, anglo-saxon you know i can't i can't help that i'm english british I can't help it. It's just a fact. And I can't help that that brings inherent bias because I grew up in a certain way, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I do everything I possibly can to try and reject all the things that would be, you know, British because, you know, you know, there's lots of great things about this country and, uh, and being British, but, but there's so many things that are dreadful and there's so much more to learn from most other people's. So, you know, it, it's a fact that I'm British. It's a fact that that brings with it, you know, a certain um, perspective on, on the world just because of the, the culture and the, and the country I've grown up in. But it's really, really important. And I've mainly done global jobs, but not exclusively, to, to understand and, and have the voice of those nationalities in the room. So, so if you're building a marketing team, where is the Argentinian person? Where is the Chinese lady? Where's the... Because... You know, diversity is talked about you know, nonstop at the moment, which is fantastic. Thank goodness it is. But there are so many more depths to diversity in terms of university education versus market trader that's made their way up. 
uh, and loads of work is going on in, in, in that space for, for people that haven't had that education. Fantastic. I want more of those. But just different cultures, different ways of seeing things, different input. I mean, it, I can't overstate how important it is to have different points of view around the table. I mean, it's, it's just fundamental. And I would say so even in even if you're a UK focused business, get all the different bits of the of the UK that you need around the table represented in your team. And but it, Richie, even more so in a global business, it's absolutely fundamental. So I think there's a lot more work we do. We've got lots of languages, we've got lots of nationalities, but I think we could uh, we could do even more. Awesome. Mm. So many marketing folks, well, probably all, are currently thinking about what does cost of living crisis, inflation, economic downturn mean? Um, what what does that mean for for Rentkill? Well, I think um, it, it's. You know, there's 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 good and there's good and bad. We are continually focused on um, energy saving. We're trying to find newer, leaner ways of solving the same problems. Um, we're continually focused on sustainability. Again, not not for some box tick, but because actually it's just fundamental to what we do. As we are also have a very fortunate position, we are we have a leadership position in the market. It's our obligation to set the standard and what is because. If we don't do it, then it's quite actually likely that no one will. So we do it and then others have to follow. And that's, you know, that's great. So we, we you know, we have an obligation um, in that space. Um, so uh, I think, you know, there are lots of luxury brands out there and, and they won't be affected by, you know, some of the some of the things that a lot of the population will. Um, but, but we're also in a bit of a different position, which is lucky. And just as a segue into my life, you know, tragically the cockroach population is not aware that a recession is looming you know it's 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 breeding it's wanting to eat stuff there are rats there are people so from a pest control and from a hygiene point of view the market goes on oblivious to you know what what's going on so we're very fortunate we continue to do the right things and and there are clearly changes that we're making around you know energy saving sustainability um and creating extra value but at the, the sector we happen to be in will grow in any case because but the, the challenge is customers will have less money to deal with it and customers will want solutions that deal it in a different way and so we have to innovate and we have to find new ways to serve those customers i'll tell you gary it's um yeah it's a fascinating and, and as you say one that uh that is almost uh recession proof in the context of what the problem you're trying to solve but of course there is of course uh you know a human at the end of that that needs to pay for it too Gary, we're coming to the end of the segment, and I really do feel we could probably talk for hours more and more. But um, perhaps last question then. You've you've clearly got um, a fantastic job title um, and incorporating some of the, the key elements um, that many would aspire to achieve across their career. Um, so really reached a pinnacle. Do you aspire to be a CEO? Um, great question. I, I've done general management roles. I've done some small CEO roles. Um, um, I, a yes and no, I think is probably the answer. I'm very, very happy doing what I'm doing. I've got a huge uh, scope. I'm working alongside the CEO, CFO and, and HRD and, and, and my colleagues in all the regions. Um, it, it's, it's going great. Um, I, I think there's good and bad to being a CEO. Um, you know, the buck, the buck does stop with you, which is, you know, which is good. You get to influence, you get to set your tone. I, I would like to do more of that just to make sure that kind of the culture of a business. Uh, so if I was, you know, again, CEO of a, of a, of a separate business, 
um, setting the tone for how I want it to be, setting the tone for how I want, you know, the investment in people, how I expect people to treat each other, how that manifests itself in flow through of the customer, what we need to do to have that customer focus. So you can do, you know, even more of that because it's just as important for finance to have that same mindset. Um, years ago, I boringly did an MBA and my thesis on the MBA was about how every other part department other than marketing influences the success of your marketing i.e. finance and the way they deal with the invoices and pay and treat their customers is marketing you know etc etc um so um yeah it'd be great it'd be great i've, I've had the privilege of, of having some roles like that in the past i'm very happy doing what i'm doing um but yeah let's see, let's see. we shall see thank you watch this space well we've come come to an end uh, unfortunately um but what a rich and textured time we've had with you gary so i'm just going to do a little bit of a playback of what I think we've learned. Uh, we, we learned that you never had a plan, um, but what the theme throughout was that you were always interested in what make, makes people tick. Um, you never stop learning, not least from anti-mentors and Phil, God bless him, whatever he's doing now, but taught you a thing or two about what not to do. Um, but through, you've looked after people and everything else follows from that. Um, you're calm in a crisis. Uh, the, the psychology thread always keeps coming through and, and through into properly understanding your customer and that, that brief glimpse of what happens at uh, a video game store, um, such an illuminating insight. And uh, no regrets, you can blag it, certainly. We, we saw a glimpse of that. I'd love what you said at the end about our obligation as a market leader to signal and do the right thing for the market. And, and that sort of brings through the, there's an overall thread of, um, how you take responsibility, whether it's putting your hand up for a mistake or the responsibility of a market leader or the responsibility for growing and developing people. Um, so it's been a humbling experience. And um, I also think the point about going wherever you can learn the most is I think a lot of people lose sight of that and, and tail out the, their learning tails off. Um, and so that's, that's a really good reminder for all, but uh, I've, I've, it's been humbling and we've been humbled and you are very humble. Um, given everything you've achieved. So, Gary, thank you very much for your time today. Mm -hmm.